Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Friday to you and yours. We made it to the weekend. We made it through this week. Had a little uh, weather situations in Dallas and Nashville, but we made it through the week and and have had a great week of shows. And we're going to end the week. Well, actually, we're not going to end the week because we're going to have a little Saturday edition of Fearless as well. But we'll end this Friday uh, with another great show, I have a guest uh, live in studio with me, Dom LaCour. Dom, <laughs> these guys can all tell you, I'm terrible <laughs> with pronunciations of anything, no matter how many times. Dom Luker uh, is here in studio with me. Dom is someone I discovered over Twitter in the past couple of weeks. He he puts out this, he is Twitter feed is incredible. He's very clever with how he attacks the, le- the left. He-, he-, he loves to pretend like he's attacking conservatives and Republicans. And then you get deep into the thread and you're like, oh my God, he's doing just the opposite. So he baits them in to reading the truth. I discovered this last week. Dom, you had a, a tweet about who started the KKK. I yeah. think where you, you pinned it on the Republicans. Yeah, it was a tweet saying how proof that Republicans started the KKK and, you know, racism and slavery. Yeah. And so then he starts unpacking the truth in the thread. And you're like, oh, because <laughs> when I first clicked it, I was like, how is this dude going to prove? I'm like, this. <laughs> but it, it's brilliant what he does. And then I, I look eventually and go. Well, this dude lives in Nashville. And this is the same kind of feeling I had. You guys have seen Bryson Gray on the show with me. Uh, when I discovered that Bryson Gray, the rapper, lived 30 minutes outside of Nashville, I was like, all this talent right here in Nashville area. And so invited Dom on the show because, one, Dom, I, I walk us through a little bit uh I've come to learn Don was the president or the head of uh, Blexit here. In- uh, yeah, state director, Blexit, Tennessee. But and so walk walk us through, Dom. You're a young guy, under thirty. Mm-hmm. What what has have you been red pilled? Were you once a liberal or no? Not, walk us through your how you got involved in politics and Blexit. Well, um, I never was red pilled. I do remember when I was six years old, I went with my parents to an election and my dad voted for Gore and my mom voted for Bush. They were happily married till she passed in 09. And I remember asking my dad first, because I normally would go to my dad for guidance first. And I was like, you know, why did you vote for Gore? He said, well, son, that's what black people do. And I asked my mom and she gave me like a 20 to 30 minute extensive answer. And my parents always allowed me to make my own choices. So I chose to follow up on my mom just from the information she gave me. And wow, that's fascinating. So your dad said, this is yeah. what black people do. He's still Democrat to this day. Yeah. Oh, wow. You guys are close? I'm yeah, a- very close. That's my best friend. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. And, and so what, what can you remember what your mom unpacked about? Uh, yeah, she was talking about mainly... Um, she spoke a lot about the civil rights. She was speaking on how black people have been voting Democrat for years and we're not seeing different results. She brought up welfare, saying that a black family, she was saying if we were following a democratic household, your parents wouldn't be married. So she was, I would consider like woke at that time, really. Yeah, uh, a good kind of woke, mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to the woke we have today. And, and I would have to assume, uh, you know, it, it's terrible to make an assumption as a uh, journalist, but looking at you, I'm going to have to assume your mom and dad are both black. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <And> Christian. <laughs> yeah, they are. 
and and yeah. only because of your hair. I'm. Are you from? Are they from Jamaica? Yeah. Are you, well, uh, mom, she used to be a manager at National, and my dad was a building ground supervisor at Redcliffe Elementary. I've got the school. He's a plant manager now up in Greenville, South Carolina. I forgot the school he works at. It's a high school now. Brothers and sisters. I have a, one brother that lives in Charlotte, and I have. The rest of my family, they down in Augusta, Georgia. Gotcha. And so what are, you've got a credit cadaver. You have your own company mm-hmm. that's financial advising or credit. What, what is that? It's a um, compilation of both. It's financial advising and credit repair. So we do advising for anyone that's in uh, a financial divide and also provide credit repair for people with derogatory remarks. And so... And I asked you this before the show, you, you, you're some kind of tech savant mm-hmm. or tech, how, did you go to college for this or what's, how, what's your background in technology? In the te- Self-taught. Space? I started my first website at about eight years old. It was a clothing line called Coastal. It was a play on words for coastal and style. I was really trying to compete with Hollister because the beachwear clothing was really popular at that time, but it didn't really didn't do too good. But it got me my foot in the door with web development, really. At eight years old? Yeah, that was when I first was starting with my businesses. And so I'm thinking you're coming from a family situation that really values intelligence and education. Um, well, they value good morals, <laughs> I'll say. Uh, um, I got a bachelor degree from Penn State. Only me and my brother have a degree right now in our family. so From Penn State? Yeah. In Pennsylvania? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I went online though. I never went physically. And, and so you start a company and as a, at eight years old, what, what other companies have you started? Or? Let's see, Credit Cadaver, I did uh, Coastal. I also did a drop shipping company that was trying to sell like tech and like translator, like language translators. When people listen to a certain word, it would translate it. Um, I think about three. I've always been involved in like entrepreneurial, but only had three official companies by name. And then at some point you were involved in the music industry. Mm-hmm. I was vice president of IVOS Records. It was an independent label. Say that again. I've IVOS Records, Invite IVO. Only Society. In the who? Invite Only Society. Got you. Mm-hmm. Well, and so what kind of music is that? I would say it was really spiritual. The music was like spiritual and then enlightenment. Um, no more I think about it, it really was exposing a lot of stuff that the left is doing when I think about what the artist 106 Letters was speaking about at the time, yeah. So, like, you clearly have been in this lane virtually your whole life. Mm-hmm. And and what do you think about where we're at? Are you involved with the Blexic movement? Do you Are you starting to see black people open their eyes to the scam of the left? Definitely. Without a doubt, yeah. Um, if you want to get any type of perspective on really what black America is feeling or, you know, their opinions, just look at hip hop blogs. You go to DJ Academics page and you see them post up Joe Biden. Look at the comments. You, they don't think too fondly of them. Go to hip hop blogs. Go to the hip hop pages, Shade Room, any of the places that our audience is at. Those comments will reflect reality. Really? Mm-hmm. That that. It's funny you mentioned the shade room because I thought the shade room picking up the comments I made last Friday on Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. about, hey, look, single parent households are caught at the root of a lot of the chaos and dysfunction. I found it interesting that the shade room would give that any life at all, even if they put it out there yeah. pretending like they were against me, just even putting it out there was a positive in my view and it's like they're trying to promote a discussion and that's what's going on yeah and and there's a there is a pivot going on but it seems like uh black women are, are just tied to the democrats situation we've been talking about it all week <laughs> that you know like we can't the, the black women have taken the deal from the yeah. left yeah. And black men are the ones that are most uncomfortable. Do I, you think I got the right read? Or Yeah, I do. I mean, when you think about LBJ and the Great Society, they targeted the female. They targeted that household and create uh, single-parent households. 
prior to 1964, black people invested in the stock market more than white people. Black people were more engaged in the community than white people. And we had lower crime rates. And LBJ made sure he changed that. And he targeted the female first. So. So if you had, how do you, th- where, where does this end up? How, what would you predict over the next 10 years? Do you see us pivoting in a way? I do. Because so many of us see the truth now. And so why would, do you think Republicans is a superior option? Hmm. I think it's a better option, yeah. Definitely for black people. I mean, it was the option we always had first. So why not go back to our roots? It was our party. You know, let's, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And, and you know what? I, most people don't get that. They, they have this false equivalency, like the Republicans all hate us. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats love us, but I guess like, well, hold on. If you look at what the and I've never voted, and I, you know, I can't say that I'm particularly proud of that. But I used to just try to stay away mm-hmm. from politics because I didn't see really any difference <laughs> in either party. But things have gotten so foul and immoral on the left that I, I've had to be like, well, I'm definitely gonna have to vote, <laughs> and I'm definitely not voting for these satanic people, mm-hmm. B- but. My defense of Republicans and particularly evangelicals, they have a faith in God. Yeah. And that should be the common ground. And and are they flawed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so am I. Mm-hmm. And 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 I, I'm just sorry, it's hard to convince it. I don't my experience with them is I don't think they hate me or my skin color. I do think they're bothered by what's portrayed as black culture and mm-hmm. all the immorality that's in the music and a part of the culture. I, I, I do think they don't like it, but I don't like it either. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, I got that in common with them. Mm-hmm. So with Dom, I, I'm, I'm so glad you, you stopped by. You did something funny. Do we have the uh, image of, I mean, what's the, the chimp or the gorilla that Harambe. Yeah, Justice yeah, Harambe. Yeah. yeah, you just did a tweet today, I think it was, yeah, yeah. on Harambe. Got to advocate for him, you know. So, <laughs> to, to, the, the, white, the, the white ape or gorilla that you accuse of a crime. <laughs> Refresh people's memory on Harambe's narrative uh, and, and how you even came up or thought of this. Yeah, I mean, well, how can you, how can you not think about it? it it's one of the, you know, greatest events in American history. What well, remind ever I remember Harambe being he got shot for what what happened? He was falsely shot for a kid jumping to you know his domain. That's right. Mm. And so they shot him for you know the kid made the mistake yeah. and they shot and They shot a gorilla for the kid, yeah. The black gorilla. Yeah. But a white gorilla that he wouldn't have been shot. <laughs> it wouldn't have happened. No. Had he been white, no. Had he, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, you're probably <laughs> right. You're probably right. So this this isn't just about black men. It's about anything black, apes, yep. whatever. Anything with melanin. It's it's a massive problem, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Dom, thank you for coming by. Uh, I, I I I wanted to meet you because one, I'm your tech your tech savvy, your social media savvy. I, I want to try to figure out a way to see if you can help us because I, I, we, we need your kind of help. We awesome, need young minds that uh, are as creative as you. And, and so it was great to meet you. And uh, we will be in touch. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank yes, you. All right. Uh, let me tell you guys about uh, one of my favorite topics, preborn. You are a hero. The donations you are giving to the good work of preborn saves lives. Right now, these babies are taking their first breath. Your impact reached eternity, and we're only just beginning. Why? Because babies need our help. See the overturning of Roe v. Wade only made them more ravenous for the blood of the innocent. So now we need to be more ravenous to save them. Thanks to Preborn Pregnancy Network, we can do that. For just $28, you can introduce an at-risk baby to their mother. The cost of a dinner to save a life. 
Once she sees that precious life and hears that heartbeat on an ultrasound, she is twice as likely to choose life. And that's because of you. She can. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their clinics save 150 babies. You can be a hero by giving a baby life. To donate, just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. 100% of your donation will go to saving babies. One ultrasound is just $28, less than most dinners. Get involved today. That's pound 250, keyword baby, or donate securely at preborn.com slash Jason. That's my preferred way to give. Preborn.com slash Jason. All right, stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Steve Kim, Korean Cosell, next. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. All right, welcome back. Time to get into the meat of the show. But before I do that, I want to tell you guys about my great friend, Alex Stein. Sometimes the only way to survive the insanity from the left is to laugh through it. And Alex Stein is here with the cure. He's primetime 99. He's a pimp on a blimp. And his new show is coming to Blaze TV very soon. If you like unscripted comedy that trolls the ridiculous woke ideology, you're going to love Primetime with Alex Stein. Say goodbye to political correctness and hello to Primetime 99, who's always on the grind. Watch Primetime with Alex Stein premiering February the 8th. February the 8th, that's just five days from now. Use the promo code PIMP on a blimp. For $20 off at Blaze TV, blazetv.com slash primetime. If you want to laugh, if you want to laugh at the insanity of the left, primetime's going to deliver that. You've seen him on this show. You've seen all the great, brilliant, courageous stuff he does. Can't wait to catch his show next week. All right, uh, now let's roll out to Los Angeles, get into the meat of the show today. Uh, with the Korean Cosell, Steve Kim. Steve, I, I, I gave you a long assignment this morning. I hope you got through it because it's really one of the best pieces of journalism that I've seen in a long time. Ethan Strauss used to work at ESPN, used to cover the Golden State Warriors, cover the NBA. He started his own independent Substack, and he's one of the best sports writers working today. He wrote a piece yesterday about Dr. Richard Lapchick. It's titled The Diversity Man. Richard Lapchick is the Robin D'Angelo of sports with a backstory that reminds us of Jussie Smollett. If you don't know who Richard Lapchick is, he's basically the czar of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the sports world. For I'd say the last 20 years that I can remember, Richard Lapchick sends out this report card that tells sports organizations, whether it be ESPN or the NBA or the NFL, he provides a report card on how well they're doing on diversity, inclusion, and equity. And basically it's a report card that says, you don't have enough women, you don't have enough black people, you need to meet these quotas, and everybody caters their human resource departments and hiring goals in the sports world. This has been going on for 15, 20 years around trying to get a high score on Richard Lapchick's uh, diversity scorecard that he puts out. And, and so that's one aspect of the story, just educating people on who Richard Lapchick is. But Ethan Strauss goes the extra layer and does a deep dive on Richard's background and how fraudulent 
his background mm-hmm. is. That mm-hmm. Richard Lapchick, he calls him the Robin D'Angelo. I read the piece and he compared him to Jesse Smollett. I read the piece and was like, oh, this is the Sean King. You know, with the fake background, the fake hate crime, you know, Sean King says that, you know, Sean King's the white dude that pretends to be black over Twitter and, you know, he rips off people and has this, you know, very shady background. And Sean King tells a story about in high school, he was the victim of a race crime. He got beat up because he was black, even though he's white. And and that's part of his bona fides as a, a racial justice warrior. Richard Lapchick, and I did not know this, and I've known Richard Lapchick for years. I used to be friendly with Richard Lapchick. I spoke at some events on the same stage as Richard Lapchick back in the day. I had no idea he had this fabricated, that's the only way I could read this story, uh, fabricated story about his background, about how, and again, you've seen the picture, Richard Lapchick's a white dude, he's saying in the 1970s he was nearly killed. Uh, because of his anti-apartheid stance, and and I'm just telling you, gotta go hunt down Ethan Strauss, read this story, and read about the impact Richard Lapchick has had on the sports world, and and how he has been the person, the main driving force behind a lot of this quota and diversity insanity in the sports world. I thought it was an amazing piece of journalism. I found it fascinating. He educated me about someone that I thought I knew. And, and like now I'm like, oh, this has been BS from the start. What was your take, Steve? Yeah, well, uh, so it's all of those people that you named with the dash of Bubba Wallace. And, and there's no doubt about it that Richard Blatchick <laughs> will be invited to the barbecue. And in fact, at the barbecue, he'll be taking a roll call and doing his own census to make sure that there's a lot of people represented there, right? I just, it's amazing the grip that he's had. I remember he used to write or had uh, pieces published in Sporting News. Remember that publication? They'd be like, oh, okay, I yes. guess there's going to be quotas. And I'd be like, all right, whatever. And I thought at a certain point he was well-meaning. But that was over a decade ago, and I have a much different view of this. This is a guy who obviously might have some white guilt, and the genius of what he has done, he has turned his white guilt into an industry. In fact, this is white guilt guilting other white people, and he's gotten rich off of it, and now he's cool, he gets to dap up people, and then he gets the the satisfaction of people saying, you're not one of the bad ones. It's it's the phoniest bit of activism, and it's interesting in reading that piece, because I've seen what's going on with the National Hockey League, how they have to diversify everything, right? By the way, they never diversify with Latins, Mexicans, Koreans, Asians. It's it's funny. It's only diversifying with certain people. But I don't know in how many inner cities across the country, right, how many kids are really saying, you know, one day, one day I want to work for the New York Islanders or the Los Angeles Kings or the Phoenix Coyotes. I mean, give me a break. I still, again, I have not kept up with hockey in a very long time. But if you put a gun to my head and said, Steve, who's the last black hockey player? I would still say Grant Fuhr. Okay, and I know there have been some other guys that have played in the league that were black. But I, Richard Latchick is one of these guys. He was ahead of the curve, though. Before this became a full-blown industry, he had created his own business. And the capitalism uh, part of it, I think, is great. Because what's he get, about ten dollars to $15,000 to wag the finger at all these corporations? It's an amazing grift. It, it, it is, and he, that's the beauty of, I mean, Ethan, this is a complete story, and I'm telling you, if you have any interest in sports at all, you have to read this. If you have any interest in understanding what's really driving the whole diversity, inclusion, and equity agenda, it's money. This is a financial scam being executed and it's installing people. And these are conclusions you have to draw. It's not totally handed to you, force fed to you. But, but, but what, it, what this story exposes and, and helps you understand is like they're installing people into jobs who have no real qualifications other than 
diversity, inclusion, and equity. And so it's like, how would the New York Islanders fix their diversity problem? Because you're right, there's not a lot of black people sitting around in America going, oh, I wanna work for the, in the National Hockey League for the New York Islanders. But, but you know what job, what staff we can create that they would be qualified? They can be part of our 15-man diversity, equity, and inclusion team. And so they can, we can hire 15 people within the New York Islanders to make sure we don't do anything racist or to instruct white people on how to be better people and how to manage any black employees if they had black employees. And so, boom, we've just created a diversity, inclusion, and equity staff. We've just added 15 uh, staff members to our team, and now we get a high score on Richard Lapchick's Scorecard. Yeah. We're now more I mean, diverse. They, they add nothing to the organization. Jason, I mean, what does Lapchick do? Does he get media guides of every professional team? Remember they used to print those out? They were like little books before they were just downloaded. And would he go to like the management and you'd be like, okay, let's do it. Like, I mean, literally, would he just point out every single white person and then do the math? And that's basically what it is. Now, look, if Lapchick ever did a study on the lack of Asian cornerbacks or wide receivers in the National Football League and provide some solutions. So I, we, because we've had enough kickers. We've had some kickers. My uh, nephew in Atlanta is doing very well down there. He's kicking like Bruce Lee. But if he ever does that study, he'd have my interest. But I, I don't think there's ever been a sports fan across the board that has ever watched the game and said, you know what? There's not enough middle-level executives of color in this organization or this league. I refuse to watch it. But again, congratulations to Mr. Lapchick. You have grifted into a very, very lucrative career. And he's making a bunch of money off of it. Other people are making, because this is commonplace within large corporations. Hey, we got a 30-person, 20-person diversity, equity, inclusion staff. On a, that, that just run around and tell us how to be better white people. And th this is it. Universities, they've created all these departments. And so, again, there's more administrators on college campuses than actual professors that are teaching things. And, and it, it's, it's why our educational system is collapsing and isn't nearly as effective. And so just imagine if on this show I had to, I was forced to hire people with no real passion for talking sports, talking culture, talking race, talking politics. But in order to meet some diversity deal, I had to bring them on to this team. I want people with an authentic passion and qualifications to, to be a part of what I'm doing. That's how you get to greatness. If you start Again, I, I couldn't imagine, like, there will be people like, hey, I'll take a job with the Phoenix Coyote, mid-level management, pays 175000 a year, has good uh, health benefits. Yeah, I'll take that job. But do they have any, do they know anything about the Detroit Red Wings? Do they know anything about the history of the organization? Are they really passionate about it? Are they just there to collect a check? That's not what companies want. And it can, and as Ethan Strauss pointed out, as he starts talking about, you know, head coaches and things like that and how, you know, Lapchick was very involved in the development of the Rooney Rule. And Ethan walks you through how that's been a disaster and has mm. actually worked against black coaches. <laughs> the minute, solutions Lapchick are offering, not they don't work, they actually do damage. And he's still getting paid. Wait a minute, Whitlock. You're telling me... I'm not the token Asian. That's actually very reassuring, but disturbing at the same time. Now, here's the thing. And, and Thomas Sowell has talked about this. When it comes to like wanting diversity and a certain percentage that matches the American public when it comes to certain jobs, right? How come they don't care about the steel workers, factory workers, coal miners, the people that climb telephone poles, the, the people that dig ditches? The people that uh, work in oil wells and have oil and petroleum all over their ears and they can't clean it out for five years. How come they don't ever care about diversity and representation in those jobs? I, I find that fascinating in, in a lot of different respects. Um, I, you know, Lapchick's one of these guys. I think at one point he was well-meaning and he cleared his conscience 
But then when it became lucrative and this became a full-blown gig, well, there was no stopping him at that point. And so that, that's his thing. He's never going to change. But I've, I've never actually seen a league get better because I feel as though the middle management executives are now 15% more minorities. Nobody's ever cared. Nobody's ever looked at Well, Lapchick has. But outside of that, let's just be honest. Most of the American public cares about the games. And by the way, if you look at certain leagues, they skew in a certain demographic. Basically, look, the NFL and National Football League, they're about, what, 75 to 80% black? And you know what's funny? Most of white America is good with it. Because you know why? Because they want to see faster, better players, and they don't want to see a bunch of layups and fadeaway jumpers. That's the truth of the matter. All right, so if Lapchick really wants to get into that, let's get some more white ball players that can't go above the rim if you really want equity and diversity in these leagues. You make a very interesting, compelling point that I don't think we spend enough time talking about is like white sports fans were perfectly fine going to NBA and NFL games and and only seeing in the NFL 30% representation and in the NBA maybe 15% representation, perfectly fine. There's no movement of white people demanding that, hey, we're the fans, we're the majority of the audience in the arena, we're the majority of the audience watching on TV, we buy most of the gear. You know what? 50% of the NFL players need to be white or there's a problem. 50% of the NBA players need to be there's a problem. It's like they're perfectly fine with that. It's, it's, it's like black people, we get to be racist and, and say, you know what? If we're not 50% or some 12% or 15% or whatever, if we don't meet some quota system, we have a problem. You're racist. And, and as it relates to the NFL and NBA, I, I always just tell people, I was like, you're sure these owners that are paying these players far more than mid-level executives, far more than the head coaches. You're sure they're they're racist and that they're like, and and everybody, oh, well, it's just like, it's slavery though. It's they're fine with the players out on Mm -hmm. the field picking the cotton. They just don't want them doing the coaching or middle management stuff for one one hundredth of the money. It, it just doesn't make sense. People are twisting their brains into pretzels to defend this racial idolatry and racism. We need to cut it out. Uh, Steve, I'm going to move. Um, let you, yeah. I'll let you go ahead and then we'll move. Yeah, I'll just say this. As someone, I don't watch the NBA anymore, but if you gave me a choice between the current NBA and its makeup and let's say some sort of Asian basketball associations to represent us in America, I would never watch that other league. I don't need to see a bunch of sawed-off wannabe Kobe Bryants wearing Air Jordans who could never dunk and one guy with the growth spurt like Yao Ming. Because I understand the NBA has the best players. That's an earned diversity. It's not a forced diversity, and I think there is a difference. The American sports fan, uh, you could call them cold-hearted, you can call them bloodthirsty, but for the most part, they want to see the best athletes at the highest level. And it's never really mattered to them the makeup. I don't even think there's such thing as a great white hope anymore. I really don't. It used to exist in boxing. Now people are just like, look, who's the best fighter? The days of wanting a Jerry Cooney to beat a Larry Holmes. There's not even enough white well, they fighters. They got Tyson Fury. They don't need a great white hope. They got the best right. heavyweight. The yeah, but you know what's funny? <laughs> but he's from Britain, so it's a little bit different. But I'm just saying, I don't think that there's this big yearning that uh, or for no, most of America, they just want to see wins and the best players. I think certain people, they overthink this whole thing. I don't think they overthink. It's just a hustle. It's just a hustle yeah. for people to make money, for the black elites to secure jobs and to make money. They don't care. Again, just like you said, the average working black person, they could give a damn less whether there were job opportunities for them. This is all about black elites taking care of themselves and guilt tripping white people into jobs. It's a joke. That's why I don't respect them. Uh, I want to move on, but I I do. Make sure, guys, Justin and, and Christian and David, that we put a link to Ethan Strauss' story 
uh, on our YouTube page so that people can go uh, read that story because it's amazing. You have to read it. It's an amazing. It's important. It's a sign that journalism isn't dead. Uh, Steve, I want to move on. Memphis's Dylan Brooks got into it with uh, Cleveland's Donovan Mitchell, uh, punched him in the groin area. Let's, let's, let's watch the clip. Boink. Yeah. Ooh. It, it's hard to, to know intent yeah. right there. That's not our job, but that's what started it all. Mm. So mm-hmm. Dylan Brooks is the guy that got into it with Shannon Sharp uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he's got quite a reputation. And now he's, you know, punching Donovan McNichol in his man parts. Not a good look for Dylan Brooks. Your thoughts on, you know, does, does this in any, we'll start here. Does it in any way exonerate Shannon Sharp that Dylan Brooks is kind of an idiot? No, but by the way, speaking of the NBA, happy Jordan Day. We'd be remiss if we did not mention happy Jordan Day to the greatest basketball player we've ever seen. But Dylan Brooks seems to be a black lane beer. He is an instigator. He seems to get into this a lot. And you know what was worse than the uh, shot to the groin? Because you can get over that. I mean, you're going to breathe heavy. You're going to rise in pain. He tried to roll over his knees. And I think knees are more important than temporary testicular discomfort for a basketball player, right? So, but when in terms of Shannon Sharp, no, because Dylan Brooks agitates other players, the men in the arena, and that man right there with the uh, super sweater, he basically wagged a finger about a year ago at NBA fans and patrons about stay out of it, respect players, your job is not to get into people's faces, and um, ironic, that's exactly what he did. Uh, Dylan Brooks is what he is. Every team has a guy like that. That's kind of an enforcer or a guy that gets on your nerves. I remember the Celtics had a few of them like ML Carr. I mentioned Bill Lane Beer. The Lakers didn't really have one in the 80s. I think Michael Cooper was probably the one guy that got under everyone's skin. But that's his role. I have no problem with Dylan Brooks. Uh, again, I'll say this. Stuff like that, um, it's actually more interest in that type of stuff than the actual games. I just have a hard time investing in the NBA. And I'll give this to Dylan Brooks. Last I checked, he doesn't load manage. So right there, I'm a Dylan Brooks guy. Thumbs up to you, Dylan. Keep it fun. Let me give you another angle on this. Let me see if this interests you at all as it relates to Dylan Brooks in Memphis. And this is John Morant's team. They're doing very good in the West. John Morant's one of the biggest young stars, if not the biggest young star in the NBA. But there are people that say the Memphis Grizzlies have an attitude Mm. that tries to mimic the city of Memphis. And Memphis is one of the most, Sarah, one of the most violent. Violent. Yes. Ghetto, in your face. That's the kind of reputation. I can't remember some of the, they've had some of those Memphis rappers make theme songs for them that are pretty... Uh, you know, in your face and consistent with hip hop culture. And they're, they're kind of this is like the Memphis hip hop basketball team. And that's why Dylan Brooks and, and gets involved in these kind of things. He's kind of taken on that mantra uh, or, or that attitude to reflect Memphis's ghetto vibe. Jay, Jason, during the uh, prime of Zach Randolph, weren't they known as like Team Gritty or Team Grit or something? They, they had this hard-nosed reputation. And, and you're right. Sometimes a franchise, it, regardless of the sport, will reflect the values or the attitude of the city, like the Detroit Bad Boys of the late 80s, um, the Steel City with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And maybe that is memphis but yeah i mean jason i remember during the heyday of zach randolph they actually had i think a, a term team grit or they were gritty and they really took pride in that yeah you know people if you don't understand memphis now i've been there twice in 15 years for various boxing events and i didn't know about the underbelly of that city i was in beale street and then i was in downtown uh, right next to the venue i think it was fedex arena uh but the word is don't venture out and if you have uh, out-of-state plates, really don't venture out. In fact, just stay indoors and order room service, okay? (laughs) Because not a lot of Graceland there, outside of Graceland. So that could be a part of it. But also, 
when your star is a high-flying guy that's going to take shots in the air and people are going to get physical, you have to surround him with a couple of enforcers that are willing to get dirty. Like, look, the one of the most underrated players and teammates that is forgotten about of Michael Jordan's career because he never won a title with them is Charles Oakley. Oakley protected Jordan. So if anyone wanted to take a shot at him, um, Oakley would say, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, we're not doing this. So maybe that's Dylan Brooks's role. Uh, in hockey, every superstar, I think it was for um, Wayne Gretzky during his heyday with the Edmonton Oilers, they had a guy by the name, I think it was Dave Semenko, as I go through my NHL knowledge, right? So every superstar needs a bodyguard. That's a fact of the matter when it comes to this stuff. But Memphis for years has kind of embraced that sort of gritty toughness with their basketball team. It, it, it Let's put a positive spin on it. It kind of reminds me of the bad boy Detroit Pistons. Yeah. And, and the team Isaiah Thomas built. They took on the bad boys deal and yep. turned it into two championships and could have been a third. It's it's and so and people said that was reflective of the Motor City and people in Detroit loved it. I, I love those Pistons teams. So, you know, but that's just something to think about. We'll keep an eye on. Hey, let's uh, move to the NFL. Joe Mixon is mm, back in the mm, news. Yeah. And, and, and I want to it sounds like the charges uh-huh. are going to be dropped. I almost tweeted this out yesterday when I first heard this story. I was like, I just can't believe Joe Mixon would be dumb enough, given his history, to pull a gun on a woman in traffic. It just sounds like, is this guy really this stupid, given his history? And he, you know, cold cocked a woman that ruined his uh, or in a restaurant and Got, couldn't play his freshman year or something or nearly lost his scholarship to Oklahoma. Could that guy really pull a gun on a woman in traffic in Cincinnati? And so according to stories I'm reading, Hamilton County Municipal Court presiding judge Kirk Kissinger will dismiss the charges only after he is sure that the alleged victim in the case has been notified. And that's according to News Radio 700 WLW in Cincinnati. Uh, let's see here. Who's this? The, I can't, let me see, figure out who's being quoted here. The reason that the prosecutor asked for dismissal had not been given, but the agent for Mixon has said that police rushed to judgment in the case that reportedly involved a road raid incident downtown. The agent says cops should be held to a higher standard, shouldn't be playing with people's lives and reputations like that. The aggravating menacing charge was brought after a woman said Mixon pulled a gun on her and threatened her at 3rd and Walnut. It isn't clear if she has recanted the claim or if a private settlement was worked out Hmm. between the parties. You think she's recanting or do you think a deal has been cut? Because, uh, you know, the Bengals in their statement, I think they put out yesterday, it was something about uh, they were sure that they called it a misdemeanor charge. Uh, Jason, one can lead to another. There's a reason why you recant. And look, we're going to let the legal process play out. We're not judge and jury. But does this past make you think about what happened here? Of course, you wouldn't be human. It was well publicized what happened uh, while he was at the University of Oklahoma. And I think that happened before the draft. And he's been a very good pro. But it kind of reminds me of a, of a boxer that I cover at length, Gervonta Tank Davis. Every couple months or years, there's issues. And before his last fight in early January, there was an allegation of a domestic uh, situation with, the, <laughs> with the, one of his baby mamas. And then all of a sudden, in 36 hours, she went from hysterically calling 911, saying that her life had been threatened to them all of a sudden reconciling and you're like huh that's a switch i'm not going to play judge and jury but i could i could actually put two and two together you know jason well, there's this old saying is like um man that guy has a lot of bad luck right when you talk about certain figures or athletes or individuals that are always getting into something you know what the reality is though with luck sometimes you are the bad luck you are the common denominator so, you know what, I'm going to be a little bit of a Pollyanna and think it's all just a misunderstanding. Joe Mixon got caught up in some stuff. But again, sometimes it is very difficult, whether it's fair or not, to overlook someone's past 
when you talk about their presence. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Steve, uh, we're going to switch up topics. Buckle up. Hold, you know, are you seated? Are you, you ready for this? Yes. Kyrie Irving, huh? according to Adrian Wojnarowski, uh, is asking to be traded from Brooklyn before Thursday's no. trade deadline. I, 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 Shams, I think, is saying that he's told them that he's leaving. Uh, well, let me read Shams' report. Uh, Brooklyn Nets all-star Kyrie Irving has requested a trade. League sources tell The Athletic the franchise has been formed that Irving prefers to move on ahead of the February trade deadline or will leave in free agency in July. I get why he's still harbors bitterness towards Joseph Tsai and the Brooklyn Nets for the way they handled the COVID situation, for the way they handled the documentary tweet, uh, Hebrews to Negroes. I get it, but I don't get it because Kyrie and Kevin Durant, before Durant got hurt, had something very special going on and looked to be headed towards maybe being the best team in the NBA. You know, I, I, I guess maybe he's trying to force his way to L.A. and to reunite with LeBron James and, and deliver, and maybe that's what the NBA wants. And, and maybe, because again, LeBron's going to surpass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the all-time scorer. The, the Lakers aren't a real threat right now to, to win anything in the postseason. The NBA is still somewhat dependent on LeBron James for ratings. I, I, I'm just trying to, in real time, make sense of this demand and it doesn't make sense to me unless the NBA is trying to fix things for LeBron James and, and Kyrie Irving just can't let go of the bitterness he has for Joseph Tsai and the Brooklyn Nets. I think it's more the latter. I mean, look, I don't think Kyrie's in cahoots with the NBA. I, I just get the sense he's not cozying up to silver. Hey, Adam, oh, I know we could. No, he's not doing that. Regardless of what they could be think, cozying up to him, yeah, they could be I get cozying it, up to him. You know what? Though? This, this is, is why the NBA. This is a league. It's the NBA that stopped Chris Paul from going to the Lakers, right? I mean, yeah, the NBA gets involved when they want to get involved. I guess, but you know what? This is the problem the NBA has: the player movement. It's just too much. It's just too much. There's no identity. There, there's no core anymore of any of these teams for the most part. And, and, and look. Kyrie is the Kanye West of the NBA. I get it. In certain respects, he's been incredibly admirable. Okay, I've agreed with some of his stances. But for him now just to bail out on KD, I don't think it's a great look. And and I just cannot get into this league because all there are is a bunch of jerseys. There are no more teams. And I get it. I'm the old guy telling everyone to get the hell off my lawn. I don't care. I like it this way. Because I grew up in a league when it was really about personalities, but you had core of teams, you had franchises that you knew had a certain identity, and you rolled with them. This new version of the super team and treating this like fantasy leagues, I don't get into it. I can see why people are getting out of it in terms of their own interest and their investment. You have the load management which has been absolutely turned into anarchy. This is another example of why I am I cannot be the only one who feels that way, that I've lost all attachment and emotional feeling towards that league. You're not the only one that feels that way. I do think if Kyrie forces his way out, it's going to be a bad look for the NBA. And, it's go- and particularly if he forces his way out and ends up with the Lakers, and, and somehow the Lakers uh, become a, a championship threat here before 
<laughs> the trade deadline. <sighs> this. Can I just say something? If I'm Joe Sy, I'm like, okay, look, you've been a pain in the backside. You're not going anywhere. All right? You're going to play and you're going to stay. There comes a point where player empowerment has ruined certain leagues. He's getting paid a lot. Yes, I, do, I actually agree with Kyrie on certain things, but you are still making a lucrative, lucrative a living playing this game of basketball. And if I'm the Nets, I hold my ground and say, you know what? No, no, no. We need to get something out of our investment. You're not going anywhere. I'm going to – well – Okay, the Nets entered Friday 31-20 and 20, firmly in the Eastern Conference playoff, but have lost seven of their last games since Kevin Durant went down with an MCL. Before Kevin Durant went down, they were the hottest team in the league. Kevin Durant is going to come back this year. I, Steve, I don't I, – here I go, tinfoil hat, and, but this to me seems about not what's best for Kyrie Irving, not what's best for the Brooklyn Nets, this seems about what's best for the NBA. The NBA is a struggling business in terms of relevancy here in America. The ratings keep, the, the distance between them and the NFL just keeps getting wider and wider and wider. I don't think they want another playoff uh, season without LeBron James making a deep run in those playoffs. If they can orchestrate something to get Kyrie Irving over to L.A. and get LeBron deep into the playoffs, I think the NBA is capable of doing that because they, they're still attached to LeBron James for ratings. Yeah, that, that might be true, but a tail wagging dog, I'll be honest with you. If that happens, you know what I would do? I still wouldn't watch the Lakers. I still wouldn't watch the NBA. I, I really wouldn't. I, I, I would just watch Jordan highlights like I do on YouTube. I just binge him for like three hours, okay? Um, <laughs> I don't find any of this compelling. I really don't. I, you know what's really the, the sickest part of the NBA coverage? Just to veer off a little bit, how these NBA media members are so afraid, unlike a Charles Barkley who may have the cachet, to actually criticize load management. And I'm just thinking to myself, hey, fellas, excuse me, hey, fellas, they're playing basketball. They are not going into like a coal mine here. They're not doing a real job. They fly private jets. They have 15 masseuses for every player. They have rest. They stay in four-star hotels. And to listen to these guys, it would be like, God, these poor players, they're only making 35. It's sickening. I, I think that whole thing in the immortal words of Brian Billick needs to be blown up. The NBA has lost the plot. It's lost its way. It needs to be thrown into the ocean and forgotten about. I, If someone actually said, Steve, do we need to go back to the 70s where the NBA finals are put back on tape delay at 1130? Yes, because no one's really watching it anyway. So that's my summation of the association. God bless David Stern. They've ruined your great league. I'm going to have to do some more thinking on this, so I'm, I'm going to stop before I say anything else, because who knows what's driving Kyrie. I, it, 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 bitterness towards the Nets, and, and I, that's well-earned bitterness. The, the mishandling of him and that Twitter tweet and the mishandling of COVID. I, I don't blame him for being bitter. This does, I mean, and I need to figure out, when was, how long was, Ke, how long will Kevin Durant How long will Kevin Durant be out? Let, let's injury timeline. When will Kevin be back for the Brooklyn Nets? He's, he was only expected to miss close to a month. Oh, hmm. Justin's telling me he'll be back for the All-Star game. I, if, if Kyrie could have stuck it out and, and won a championship in Brooklyn, that, that would have been such a great look for him. But I guess if, if he, if, I hope, I think it would be a mistake. If he goes to LA, the story's gonna be about LeBron, in, in my view, and about getting LeBron another championship. And, and it, it won't be as good a look for Kyrie Irving, but who, who knows what's going on here? I'm gonna stop the speculation. I'm gonna ask you one more thing, Steve. One last topic about Tony Romo. 
we're not we were going to do an approval rating, but we're we're not just because the Kyrie deal was a bit of a curveball in the middle of this. Tony Romo, the New York Post. Uh, wrote a story about how CBS executives over the last summer went out to talk to Tony Romo about improving the broadcast. He slipped. They're saying after this season, everybody's come out and said Tony Romo's not nearly as good. Guy got a $180 million 10-year contract, highest paid game broadcaster. He set a new market. And everybody is now saying he's not nearly as good as he used to. He seems a bit lazy, doesn't prepare and just kind of wings it on Sunday. And some people say he talks too much. Yeah, that's the knock, that he wings it and that he talks too much. I was never, I thought he was good, but even his rookie season where everybody's like, he's the greatest thing ever, I never bought it. Where are you at on Tony Romo? Has his game slipped? So an exorbitant early contract, and then he stops caring. I think Romo belongs in the NBA. But look, I, I, here's what I think this is a direct reflection of. The buzz of Greg Olson. Because he has become the new media critic darling. Greg Olson calls a really good game. I'm impressed by what he does. And obviously, I'm a little bit biased. He went to the U. But the thing is, he keeps it simple. Remember what Romo's buzz was? Was that he could actually see the game as it happens. So on a third down play, he could say that. Blitz is coming from the left side. He got, so he was really good at it because he was so connected closely to the league. It's almost like he knew the players because he had just gotten off the field. But now that it's, what, four or five years since he last played, he may be coasting a little bit. But I will be honest about it. I am not as hard on Tony Romo as a, as a lot of other people. I still find him to be kind of a, a fun personality. He's always in a good mood. Him and Jim Nance, they kind of call a game like two pals. I don't think they take it too seriously. It's still just a game. Now, is he getting a little bit too much into the banter and not the actual game? That, to me, is a valid criticism. But I'm going to go back. The fact that Greg Olson, who is a lot less in terms of that salary cap hit for their network, is rising in terms of the perception I think that's the big issue with Tony Romo. Can you match what Olsen is doing now? Tom Brady's about to enter this field as well. I don't know uh, how that dynamic may. Uh, you know what? By the, can I get into that, Jason? He's going to be bad. Please. He's going to be bad. No, nah, he is. Look, Why do you say because that? Because he doesn't say anything. Look, he's, here's the thing that gets me. And I remember way back when Joe Montana and Lawrence Taylor retired in the early 90s, and they tried them. Lawrence was on TNT and Joe was on NBC. We make the mistake of thinking that just because you're a great player and an iconic name, that it's going to drive the audience. You know what, Jason? That's true for about 10 minutes. And if you've got nothing to say and if you are not compelling and you do not have that presence, it simply will not work. Look at Drew Brees. Drew Brees is is an all-time great Hall of Famer. Very cerebral, but he could not translate that into being a broadcaster. Has Tom Brady ever given you any indication that, wow, that guy's funny? Like, you knew Charles Barkley. Like, he had a personality. He was a firecracker. He's going to let it go. He's going to be fun. Has Tom Brady ever given you that indication he was that guy? Honestly, has he? No, 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 no. But I'm... I'm not sure he's going to stink because he'll be completely liberated. He's got seven Super Bowl rings. He can say whatever he wants about anybody, and no one can clap back at him because he can just wave them rings at him. He could be tremendous. I, I, you know, we'll, we'll see. He could be yeah, a new version again, of Troy Aikman. It maybe. Maybe. But also, look, one of my favorite guys, Dan Orlovsky, is kind of a journeyman. I respect him. had an NFL career. But he has developed because he's had to work at the craft. The other thing, and I see this a lot in boxing uh, with guys who retire, all-time great champions, and they immediately say, okay, you're going to be an announcer. And you know what? These guys are terrible. They're terrible because they do not prepare and they do not take it seriously. That is why I respect Tim Bradley so much, who's a Hall of Fame fighter now, just got elected. Congratulations to the Desert Storm. 
But I know for a fact how much Tim Bradley prepares because he'll ask other people questions and he'll go through fights. He'll watch various fights. He'll read articles. And it shows on the air how prepared and how much passion he has. And some of these guys, once they leave their field of play, even though you play, uh, you, you may pay them an exorbitant amount, broadcasting is not their passion. I, I am, again, I could be totally wrong, but I am not convinced that Tom Brady is a slam dunk hire other than having a very big name for the first 10, 15 minutes. Thank you, Steve. I got to go. Thank you. Great job. Enjoy your weekend. I hear tomorrow playing, and that you know what? Even though it's Saturday, that means we'll see you tomorrow.